This is The Sidebar for the week of November 10th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Guns are a part of the fabric of our soul. They are a part, they're the engine of American history, for better and for worse. This week, we look at the history of guns in America with William Doyle. He is the author of a number of books, including American Gun, A History of the U.S. in Ten Firearms. He co-wrote that book with the late Chris Kyle of American Sniper fame. William Doyle joining us from New York City in your book, American Gun, A History of the U.S. in Ten Firearms. You begin with this sentence, quote, More than any other nation in history, the U.S. has been shaped by the gun. How so? I sometimes think that an image of the gun is as accurate a national symbol as is the bald eagle or other symbols, because uh, the gun had literally founded America in the sense that the uh, colonists, of course, uh, went to war against the uh, Imperial Britain with a motley assortment of bird guns, fowling pieces, they were called, uh, muskets, and the occasional uh, long hunting rifle. And um, as motley a collection of firearms as it was, it helped them uh, a great deal in guerrilla tactics and other ways uh, at defeating the world's largest army. So basically, uh, they won, uh, guns won our freedom. Uh, and in terms of shaping the country, of course, they've been tools of history. They've been tools of terrible violence. I mean, guns literally tore our country apart in the Civil War. They have been tools of crime. They have been tools of madness in terms of uh, uh, mass uh, uh, killings. But they've also been tools of justice in the, in the hands of our military and our police and uh, law and order. So it's, uh, and, and more than any, any other country, I think America is reflected in the technology and the progression of different weapons that have been available, both to the law and the military and to criminals and others who use them for uh, evil purposes. And we'll be talking about all of these topics, but let's begin with the American long rifle. And you tell the story in your book about Timothy Murphy, October 1777. This is the Battle of Saratoga, which is an early, pivotal battle to establish the effectiveness or the, or the validity of a revolution in the first place. Timothy Murphy is a sniper with a long rifle on the American side hidden in a tree. And in typical sneaky American fashion on the battlefield, he's zeroing in not on regular troops, but on a British officer which the British thought was a horrific, a horrible, dirty way to fight because you could easily pick them off, pick, pick out who they were. And he fired once at a general on the battlefield at a pivotal moment of the Battle of Saratoga, and he missed. He reloaded, fired again, and missed. The third time, he hit the general in the stomach. Now, the sight of the general tumbling off of his horse caused the British line to falter, and start falling back. The Battle of Saratoga was won by the colonial uh, troops in that moment, and it shows you the 
power of one hunting rifle at a very long range against the right target and its ability to shape history. And you write about 10 guns. Let's focus on just a couple. The Colt Single Action Army Revolver, Chapter 3 in your book, June 1844, involving a Texas Ranger. What's the story? Well, the Texas Rangers had one of the earliest versions of the Colt, uh, the Colt uh, sidearm or, or uh, uh, revolver, which was experimental, and it was not that good, actually, but it was good enough to terrify the attacking Native American forces into breaking ranks, because this revolver, as, as stated in the name, could shoot multiple uh, uh, rounds at a target, and that was brand new. There really were no multiple-shot uh, handguns uh, prior to this. And the uh, Colt, of course, was a great industrial uh, success story in terms of manufacturing, and uh, they eventually perfected the pistol into a uh, into a six shot, what was eventually called the Colt 45 Army Revolver, which symbolized both law and order in the in the Old West. Um, every sheriff and every deputy, uh, and many of the settlers carried these guns for for defense, uh, and. It eventually became the emblem of the bad guys, of the desperados, of the uh, bank robbers and others who terrorized the, the West. So it was used by both sides because it was a, a perfect weapon for its purpose, which was accuracy and power at short to medium range uh, engagements. And that was a very decisive uh, firearm in American history. Your book, American Gun, co-authored with Chris Kyle, who, of course, the best-selling author, American Sniper, who ironically died at the hands of violence and guns. How did this project come about, and what was your collaboration like with Chris Kyle? Chris and I started working on this in 2012, and he died in 2013. I was getting to know him. Uh, he, he and I have the same uh, literary agent, and he introduced us, and we, I discovered something that I don't know if it's come through clearly in the, the writing about Chris. And I should stress that I did not know him well. I was getting to know and really like him very well uh, when he died. But one, th one thing that he really that, that touched me about him was he was a very funny guy, and he was passionate about American history. And it was a very uh, infectious enthusiasm uh, for history, and that was the, the source of our collaboration. He picked all of these guns, uh, the 10 that he thought were the most important in American history, and we had already plunged into the research and the writing of this when, uh, as you say, uh, uh, we lost him. So his widow, Taya, and I and others helped uh, get the book across the finish line in his voice and in his uh, uh, spirit. But he was very enthusiastic about the honest, full picture of the history of the gun in America, because, of course, he was a very vivid expression of that, being a Navy SEAL sniper and one of the, uh, the best ever. And, of course, a tragic irony. How was he killed? Under what circumstances? Well, the press reported quite widely that he was killed by a fellow Iraq War veteran who he was in the process of trying to help. 
Um, I think I'd leave it at that because I don't have much more to add to that, really, other than how tragic it was. And he also lost his best friend, uh, Chad Littlefield, who was also killed in that uh, event. So um, he was a father and a husband and I think just a really good friend to those of us who had the, you know, the, the, the pleasure of, of knowing him. And this book was the last um, thing they got to work on. And uh, uh, it, it, it's really a testament, I think, to his love of American history. William Doyle, for those who travel to Washington, D.C. and visit the White House, if they travel across Pennsylvania Avenue to Blair House, they will see a plaque commemorating what happened on November 1st, 1950. And through the prism of that incident, you write about the 38 Special Police Revolver, Chapter 9 of your book. What's that story? Yeah, the 38 uh, Special, and this is really the, the uh, designation for a, a family of uh, of guns, if you will. But the 38 was the standard uh, handgun for police forces at the time. And what happened on that day uh, during Truman's presidency, while Truman was staying in the Blair House, uh, while the White House was being renovated, was a group of uh, Puerto Rican nationalists, or you could describe them as gunmen or, or terrorists, depending on your point of view, attempted to storm the building and kill Harry Truman, uh, in their view, uh, to, to advance the cause of Puerto Rican nationalism and independence. They got very close to that. In fact, they killed a Capitol, U.S. Capitol policeman, or a D.C. Uh, a policeman who was affiliated with the, uh, with the White House police, actually, who was in a box, a police box outside who challenged one of them, one of them coming in. Um, but there was another police officer with a 38 at a close range who chased them from halfway across Pennsylvania Ave Avenue and put them down and neutralized them just as they were about to run up the steps and shoot their way into Blair House. And what's very interesting there is Blair House had an ammunition and gun room it was, you know, they had a lot of firepower, but it was locked, and they could not get it open fast enough. So, it, you know, Harry Truman was a sitting duck. In fact, he poked his head out the, 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 the window and possibly saw the assassin from a distance of maybe 50 yards uh, running into the entrance. Um, but in, an, in the nick of time, they were stopped basically by uh, a very well-aimed bullet from a, from a 38 uh, revolver. As you look at these 10 firearms over the course of history, which one intrigued you the most? What did you learn uh, the most about? Well, you know, my father was a World War II veteran, and he was trained on three of the 10 guns. Uh, first is the 1911 Army pistol, which was released in 1911 and amazingly is still in use today. Uh, widely, it's that good a basic uh, mechanism. We know with some minor changes. He, my father was also trained on the 1903 Springfield rifle, which was designed in part by Teddy Roosevelt, and versions of which are still in use in our military today as, as sniper uh, weapons. It's a more advanced version, but it's basically the, the original idea. And he finally, he was also trained on the um, Thompson submachine gun. Fascinating weapon that Chris and I chose. 
you know, it's controversial. If you're a gun buff or a gun historian, you might choose another weapon. But we thought it symbolized the era of prohibition, of gangster um, terror that uh, really affected sections of New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. There were things called the Tommy Gun Wars, the Tommy Gun Wars, where uh, gangsters would, you know, pass through each other's neighborhood and just spray the neighborhood with uh, with bullets from the Thompson submachine gun. The police, interestingly, were uh, outgunned and they could not respond with their own Thompson submachine gun because you don't want to start spraying the background and innocent bystanders with bullets that fly all over, all over the place. So they were in trouble for a while, deal, how to deal with that. And I think the story of American wep- uh, guns is sometimes the story of police trying to figure out how to cope with the bad guys having much higher fire, firepower. That happened in the 1990s, too, by the way, when um, a lot of criminals started getting very high-powered, very sophisticated, sometimes foreign-made uh, weapons, and the police had to either uh, you know, outdo them or somehow figure out a way of coping with this um, tech technology advance that the bad guys had. And as you look at the, the arc of history and the role of guns, which companies, which individuals have really been developing the technology for these firearms over the last 200-plus years? Are there individuals uh, or places that you can point to? Sure. I think the, uh, you know, Samuel Colt was the, was the greatest gun designer and manufacturer of all time. He had the biggest impact. Um, interestingly, Eli Whitney of cotton gin fame helped him with his original manufacturing operation and figuring out how to mass produce these weapons. I'm, I'm fascinated, Steve, by presidents who are gun buffs. Teddy Roosevelt helped design the 1903 Springfield. Um, Abraham Lincoln was a gun buff, literally, and a technology geek. He had a, a shooting range, a private shooting range of his own behind the White House in a garbage area between the White House then and the Washington Monument, where he liked to test fire various new guns that the army was considering. Um, John F. Kennedy was personally involved in the first designs of the uh, M, what we now call the M16 assault rifle for military purposes. He was very interested in that. He, uh, he examined the first versions of it. And as you know, as you may know, the first versions of that were terribly ineffective in, in the jungle in Vietnam. They were sort of a space-age design. Uh, they were very hard to maintain and clean and operate in the jungle. And many Americans died because of that, because uh, they eventually figured, you know, they improved it. But it shows you how often bureaucrats in Washington can make the wrong decisions. But a great example of that is in the Civil War, our troops the, uh, on the Union side were begging for advanced repeating rifles and um, rifles that had uh, percussion cups that you, uh, caps that you could load through the breech rather than through the musket. They were available. They had been already developed. Lincoln had test-fired them and loved them. But bureaucrats in Washington said, no, they're going to waste too many bullets <laughs> and they cost too much. And that delayed the war by at least six months, if not more. Bad bureaucratic decision-making. Which well, sometimes affects us still. I was just going to mention William Doyle. You mentioned earlier Samuel Colt, uh, and I'm curious what impact his Colt 45 has had on American history, and why was it called 
a 45? Well, it's, it's a 45 caliber. Uh, the one reason, and it, and it did have uh, competition from some other, uh, some other very good, like Smith and Wesson and other designs. But the main reason was its ubiquity. It was the ubiquitous weapon on the frontier among lawmen and among uh, criminals, and it endured for a number of years. And it was a very, very well-designed and well-functioning uh, weapon. It, it had no, basically no problems with it. It was involved in some famous shootouts, and uh, it just became, I think, actually, it, it also assumed heroic or iconic status in Hollywood, which, of course, glorified the Winchester 1873, which was a another frontier weapon, and um, it was the Gary Cooper's weapon in High Noon, I believe, the Colt 45, and you know everybody everybody used it. Now there's there's the also the, the M1911 Army weapon became the ubiquitous um, Army pistol as well. So the, you know these these designs tend to endure over. 20, 40, 50, even sometimes 100 years, which is rather rather remarkable. Number 10 on the list is the M16, described as, quote, the new little black weapon. Why? Well, it was, it was jet black. It was made of advanced uh, materials, uh, you know, allegedly space-age design, and it was introduced in the early 60s. And in theory, it was a wonderful weapon. And today... Its successors, based, basically based on the same platform, are our uh, standard M4. Let's say the um, Army of the Army basic uh, assault rifle, and it was, uh, in theory, very effective. It, it, it put out a lot of fire, a lot of rounds. It was accurate, and so forth. But again, in Vietnam, it failed miserably for at least two years, and again, the bureaucrats blamed the soldiers. The bureaucrats in Washington said, no, no, these guys aren't maintaining the weapon properly. Meanwhile, American soldiers and Marines are dying in the jungle, and they're saying, no, the thing is jamming, it's fouling up, and we're getting overrun before we can get our shots out. So eventually they fixed it, but it was a terrible scandal in the, let's say, the year and a half, two years it took for them to figure out what was wrong with it. As you look at guns in America, and you pointed out earlier that really firearms have been part of the history of North America, dating back to the Spanish explorers, but I'm curious from your standpoint if the culture is different in the U.S. versus Canada, Mexico, or the Caribbean, and if so, why? Well, I think it's very different. I don't think it's because of any particular extra-violent urge in the American soul. I think it's simply a function of our history. Think about it. The frontier itself was created by hunters who put food on the table with guns and, unfortunately, by the use of gun of weapons, of, of guns, to oppress and eliminate Native American uh, opposition to westward expansion. And, importantly, it was used as a tool of terror oppression against black Americans. Think about it. The uh, the ability of slaveholders and um, post-Civil War white supremacy to subjugate uh, black population, our, our African-American brothers and sisters, was largely based on guns, on Klansmen riding with guns in the night, on sheriffs and uh, lawmen who, who 
you know, remove the rights of American citizenship from black Americans even after the Civil War. So in that sense, it was a symbol of uh, the problems we have as a nation. Um, but I think no other nation has been shaped as much as we have by the gun, both for good and for bad. But look at it this way. The M1 Garand rifle, which we hadn't talked about, was a very effective, well-designed uh, weapon, which was the standard shoulder rifle of every most of the American GIs in World War II. They freed Europe with this gun, and they freed Asia and the Pacific with this gun uh, because it was much, much better than the standard shoulder rifle of the Germans or the Japanese. The Japanese and Germans had bolt-action old rifles. We had the M1 Garand, which was a semi-automatic, self-loading, eight-shot clip, which enabled you to do much uh, more damage on the battlefield, much more efficiently. So there's, there's the gun that won World War II, you could argue, and it's a good thing we had it. You mentioned, though, earlier about the mass shootings in this country, whether it's what we saw in Texas this past week, last month in Las Vegas, Orlando, Sandy Hook, or Columbine. Why are we seeing more of this from your standpoint, these horrific killings where there are so many casualties? You know, that, that's a question for a higher power. Um, what I'm most, what I, what I pray will happen soon is that the people who support gun control, so-called gun control, the people who support minimum levels of gun safety, let's call it gun safety, and people like the National Rifle Association and uh, responsible hunters and sportsmen and women, I hope they someday get together and agree on what they can agree on. I called up the NRA one day and I asked them, do you have any opinion about uh, technology trigger uh, uh, devices that would validate your fingerprint before you're allowed to shoot your gun? That's one safety measure that's been discussed. And I expected them to say, no, we're against it. Well, because I didn't know what their position was. They told me, they said, we have no problem with that as long as it's not a government mandate, because a government mandate might rush the technology too soon, and uh, we would support it if it was, if the marketplace uh, required it, and if all the American military and police buyers insisted on it, then the technology would get perfected quickly, and it would probably become a standard feature of most guns sold in America, perhaps. And we as the NRA would have no problem with that. I was amazed by that. And that's the kind of thing I think we should all be getting together on, whether it's mental health, whether it's, whether it's voluntarily, voluntarily reducing the amount of uh, violence in our media and video games. Let's look at all of this and let's try to come together uh, with so – I don't have the solutions at all whatsoever. But I know that if we all work together and pray together perhaps, as Speaker Ryan says, we can – figure out some ways to deal with this. I have no idea why it's happening other than uh, mental health and bureaucratic foul-ups enabling some people to have guns who shouldn't have guns. Uh, this is my personal opinion, uh, Chris Kyle's opinion I can't talk to. Uh, I think he was a strong Second Amendment man, and uh, our book is very non-political. It's basically a look at history. But this is the history we're making today, and I, I pray that we figure out a way of uh, – getting together and, and fixing as much as we can fix. And again, under the category of your opinion, do you think we can get there? 
Oh, sure. I mean, I think we all should abandon our assumptions about the other side, which are whatever the other side is. I think we have no choice but to figure out how to work together on these things because, you know, th- this can't continue. This is not acceptable. Uh, we have to think in new ways. We really do. We have to uh, um, we have to stop it, and we have to stop it as a nation and uh, together, I think, rather than um, – you know, resorting to familiar political cliches. I think that's gotten us nowhere. In the epilogue, you wrote, guns are a product of their time. So did the wars shape the guns, or did the guns shape the wars? Well, I wish the soldiers shaped the guns, because if they did, there would have been much, uh, the Civil War would have ended sooner. and um, the uh, tragedy of the M-16 in Vietnam would not have happened. So soldiers need to be a lot more involved in the process. But I think both both happens, doesn't it? I think that um, sometimes you have technologies that are 80 years old on the battlefield, and sometimes you have weapons of the future. Uh, You know, now we have drones and uh, rockets launched from drones from 1,000 miles away, um, it, it, it's a it's a good question you're asking, and I don't know what the answer is other than um, we have to give our police and our military the best weaponry available, so they can um, uh, you know so so they can defend themselves and defend our freedom and that of uh, of, of our allies around the world. It's, it's absolutely critical. William Doyle, final question. What did you learn in researching this book? And I guess more importantly, what do you think readers should take away from American Gun? Well, I learned through Chris Kyle's enthusiasm for American history that guns are a part of the fabric of our soul. They are a part, they're the engine of American history for better and for worse. And that guns reflect the times we live in, they reflect the laws we have. They reflect the problems of society. They reflect our ability to help the cause of freedom around the world, to capture terrorists, to uh, enforce the law where we can. But in the end, I think they also are uh, the ultimate reflection of our own soul in our ability to control life and death and to somehow get together as a society and um, reduce the violence that sometimes can flow out of the wrong people having uh, uh, misusing guns. That's the eternal question. I have no idea what the answer is, but I think we all need to think in much, much more non-political and open-minded ways. And, you know, radical thinking outside the box, perhaps, as to how we can get together and control the power of guns so they so we are their master and not their servant or their victim. That's, the, that's one of the eternal questions this country faces, and the only way we're going to solve it is by getting together, all of us, and uh, coming up with new solutions. A History of the United States in Ten Firearms, the work of William Doyle, who is joining us from New York City. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.